0: Music is everywhere. You just have to know where to find it. As I pull up in front of a house in northern Maryland, I'm reminded of this fact. I've conducted interviews in clubs, bars, on tour buses, inside vans and alleyways, beer gardens, even inside an Ethiopian restaurant. At someone's house? That's new. And behind the bright yellow front door staring me in the face, a man named Ken Stringfellow waits to talk to me for episode 105 of the Independent Minded Podcast in the middle of suburbia, in a place called Chevy Chase.
1: You take drugs, Danny? Every day.
2: Good.
0: There's big houses all around, which means big money. But Ken Stringfellow doesn't live here. He lives 5,000 miles away in France, a Washington State native who fled America for love, and perhaps more. Ken is a founding member of Seattle-based power pop act The Posies, a band with some modest commercial and college radio success, and a long career that began in the late 1980s before the inevitable temporary breakup around the turn of the century. During and after this time, Ken Stringfellow hasn't rested on his laurels, no sir. He's had a long solo career of his own, tons of side projects, and he's likely put French bread on the table thanks to his work with bands like Big Star and R.E.M. Ken Stringfellow is an indie music lifer, and now he's here in Chevy Chase, the city, not the man, to perform in front of 40 people who paid to see him sing, play guitar and piano in someone else's living room. My interview with Ken is last minute. This is Independent Minded in 2019. Guerrilla interviews in strange places, cab rides to suburban residences, surprises. We set up in a guest room adorned with family photos and books about musicians, some of which I recognize from my own collection. And as I hit the record button on my trusty Tascam, I remind myself that this is what I signed up for after putting my commercial radio career on pause. The glorious unknown. And the thousands of followers and hundreds of dollars aside, This is what makes the podcast so rewarding that I can sit on a couch in a house owned by a guy named Parthenon Huxley and talk to a guy like Ken Stringfellow about the highs and lows of being just like me, an independent artist. I make small stray observations. Ken wears thick, stylish glasses during the interview, but when it's time to take a photo or perform in front of the house guests, the glasses disappear. Is he unaware of his bespectacled sex appeal? Kenz loses a goose in front of the small crowd, cracking jokes about technical issues, politics, his surroundings, his back catalogue. He takes requests from the audience, but refuses to play the songs he deems too challenging. He stops down to tune his guitar after almost every song, because here, Ken Stringfellow is the roadie, and he's the tour manager too. And this is all by design, all premeditated. After three decades on the road, this is how Ken Stringfellow chooses to enjoy the journey. An excuse to visit with friends and fans to travel the country he no longer lives in. Couchsurfing his way across America and reminding his fans that he's still doing it. And doing it all on his own terms. Just another do-it-yourselfer in a do-it-yourself world. Ken and I talk about why he wants to play Your Living Room, The Posies, The Pacific Northwest, Love at First Sight, and the unfortunate timing of an album release on 9-11. Kicking things off with Find Yourself Alone from the album Touch, then my conversation with Ken Stringfellow. Right here on Independent Minded. It's
2: Ronnie Galzo's Amazing Podcast. It's Ronnie Galzo's Amazing Podcast. He's talking to people who
0: make art music. He's plugging their projects. He's making them famous. He's helping them out just by making them talk about all the bullshit that they
2: do. Uh.
1: seven and I have to brush my teeth. So I need at least five minutes before showtime. All right. Is that how long it takes you to brush your teeth? Flossing, picking, brushing. Yeah. It's, oh, are you going to floss and pick? Of course. It's showbiz, man. I don't go around <laughs> looking, just looking like crap.
0: Well, you get to look good without flossing. I nope. think that's... Considering the backdrop of where we are, I have a myriad of questions, Ken. Uh-huh. The one thing I do like about this podcast, just a little background on it. I worked in New York radio for many years, mm-hmm. moved to D.C. just a little over a year ago. Ever since I moved down here, of the time, I'd say, in the 20 or so interviews I've done since I've been down here.
1: Wait, okay, so 90% of 20, got it, yeah, got it. I'm sorry to make you do math on a show night.
0: um, Have occurred in clubs, everywhere from 930 Club to Union Stage to U Street Music Hall. 18, by the way. Well, thank you, very good. Um, (laughs) Now I'm sitting in someone's house in Chevy Chase, Maryland. Yes. There have been some- Not
1: just someone's house, but- Parthenon Huxley's house.
0: Well, I don't know who that is. So He's it's, a great musician. Okay, so you're playing kind of intimate shows in non-traditional venues.
1: It's certainly in in recent years, that is my preferred method of delivering my message, yes.
0: Can you explain your motivation?
1: I like to play my music with a minimum of distractions, and I think the audience coming to see me likes that too. I mean, I even did full band shows in a tour, of very similar non-club spaces, but for the solo music, I think it's almost essential. I mean... Most club audiences are compromised by people who are there for other reasons. I mean, my music is so f- fragile. I mean, it can be really powerful, but it's best when it's in an environment that's like kind of pure. So I don't want drunk jerks there yakking away, <laughs> you know, like a no, And my audience doesn't want them either. You know, most clubs have to let their regulars in for free. Then it's a problem, you know, or you're playing somewhere at Friday night and people go to the club because it's the cool club in town and they just they don't even care who's playing they're like okay it's 20 bucks i don't care and they go in and they you know get wasted and whatever that's not the mood here i mean people will be drinking tonight but people are here for a purpose which is they want an experience and they want to experience these songs with the fullest impact possible and we can do that if we get rid of the riffraff
0: and what's the capacity in this house tonight
1: we have sold 39 of the possible 40 tickets.
0: Wow. Okay. In a sense, this is inventive. It's certainly unique. But how have you been able to pull it off just on reputation alone? Like, how do you get into this house and houses like it? How do you make those arrangements?
1: I think because I have some really good friends, I think people also respect my efforts and my accomplishments. Um, maybe the efforts even more than the accomplishments because I think they're clearly greater. <laughs> um, but uh, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, there are fans who um, sometimes you know uh, provide these spaces. I just know some nice people. I, it probably is more of a karmic thing. You know, there's people who would like to have this show in their house slash church slash comic book store slash recording studio. In other cases, if I don't find a situation like that it's still worth it to maybe rent a place i'd rather have a couple hundred bucks go out the window in return for having an environment that just feels good for everybody and myself and one of the things that's a little harder is to um is to have a piano that's another thing that i want for the solo tours like tonight you know it happens that the huxley's have a grand piano and that's that makes it a little more challenging to find the right spot but it is it is it is doable
0: interesting that you mentioned that because i'm a piano player myself oh cool and that was kind of one of the loose rules i had over the past couple of years is that anywhere i performed or anywhere i recorded there would have to be a
1: piano i have to say that last night was the piano of all pianos i'm a really big steinway fan uh, i love him but i played a uh, Bechstein grand last night that was absolutely to die for it was so powerful You have to work a tiny bit more on the action than a Steinway. It's not the, like, oh, I'm thinking the note and it's going down. There's a little bit more pressure to put, but it just felt right. It's like driving a manual transmission in a very smooth, expensive car. And it was huge. I mean, the sound of this piano was. Enormous I've it's never fantastic. heard that
0: analogy before a piano compared to <laughs> to the transmission of a v <laughs> I mean it's awesome that you have the capacity and and the network to be able to do something like this so good on you, I'm looking forward to to seeing what it's all about after you brush your teeth
1: yes um there are people who you know uh, come to me like, well you know I want to do this too blah 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 and I'm like well I'm, I mean okay, go out and tour for thirty years first and because <laughs> that's really what it is is that I, you know, I really have been slogging away for for thirty years, and yeah, you put your time in for and, sure. You know, these are people that have come up with me, either that I knew or that they knew me, and they knew the music. And you know, the, I played at a guy's house in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania, outside of Harrisburg last week. You know, he'd been coming to see me or the Posies or whatever since ninety three, and he was just thrilled. I didn't really know him. You know, he'd been to see us in recent years. I didn't know him really well. But when I put the call out for looking to play in the area, you know, he volunteered his house and, you know, people really put out a great deal of effort for this to make it happen. But it's true that the music experience is so corporate, you know, at a certain point, everything, you know, we're preaching to the choir, yes. even an indie band, there's Miller beer signs in that bar. I mean, like it, it's inescapable. And not that I'm anti-corporate. I mean, I buy corporate products, you know, I have a, Apple computer here, for example. Yes. Uh, even these microphones we're holding—I mean, sure—is these are my surely microphones. Surely a, cor- a corporation <laughs> uh, that you know. Companies make nice things. We drive cars, whatever. But that kind of thinking is dangerous, and I want to be in on the thought process of everything about the gig. So a venue has its own agendas of what they need to do and their deals and all their things that they're thinking about and what they want to show you in terms of advertising while you're in the venue. And stuff. And I want to get rid of all of that because it's not in my control. If I want a product to be known in my show, I'll put a little banner up, you know, and it's usually going to be, you know, the local immunity radio station or something like this, not really a product. Good on you. Right. But this kind of thing. I mean, it's just, again, it's all about distractions and eliminating them. I'm not like preaching an anti corporate agenda here. It's more just, <laughs> I don't want the distractions. I don't want a Miller Beer sign in my show because it, that's nothing that people need to think about while I'm playing.
0: Um, This is an impromptu interview, uh, last second thing, and I've done over 100 episodes now. It's a delicate mix of artists that I'm intimately familiar with, Mm -hmm. fanboys of, you know, people that are coming through town that I want to talk to that I've been fans of either recently or since I've been in high school or college. Or me. Or or you, Ken.
1: (laughs) Those are the two poles of the two extremes. But
0: don't sell yourself short, Ken. This is my short-sightedness, and I had a short time to cram for my Ken Stringfellow interview. Mm -hmm. And- You are here tonight and you're on the road now to perform songs specifically from your album, Touched, which came out 18 years ago.
1: September 11th, 2001.
0: And as a native New Yorker and someone who experienced 9-11 firsthand, I found that to be incredibly interesting. And I certainly wanted to
1: talk to you about this. In hindsight, and that hindsight was like within a couple of weeks, what seemed like a curse, you know, I really worked at making it a blessing. I think the album is very special because it's not a mindless, you know, it's not a party album, It's not, but it's also not like a dirge album. It's a little mix of melancholy and hopefulness. And that, with people who already knew my music who were waiting for this album, and then this is the album that happens to come on that day, people really uh, bonded with it. It it was kind of the right medicine for a lot of people. I was okay with that, even though maybe what you said post-Posies, and it's true that my band, The Posies, was, as far as I was concerned, at the time at the broken time up. broken up we then reconciled later but mm-hmm. i thought this maybe you know when the album was was coming and i you know i was going to tour australia and all this cool stuff is coming and finally have a properly produced album on a cool label you know alan mcgee's putting out my album in europe i mean it's pretty pretty happening right yeah you all your ducks in a row and, and then ducks completely un in a row but because of the you know horrible things that happened and as weird as it sounds, and as much as I would never wish that day or, um, and for all the people who lost their lives, I mean, I'm not saying that 9-11 was a good thing.
2: Of course not. Definitely
1: right. not. Um, for me, for what happened to me, I guess it was supposed to be that way. And and that my mission changed in many ways because, not that this was definitely going to be a success either. We don't know. It could have been a bigger flop than <laughs> than what happened. But touring around in the in the days post 9-11, I realized that I think I have a different mission than being like just like entertainment dude. It's more about something very a little bit spiritual and definitely community based, and that I'm I'm here to help connect people, even just here for two hours tonight in a certain specific way.
0: Bands like the posies mm-hmm. and bands from that era, it's a very en vogue thing in rock and roll and in music in general. Retrospectives, anniversary tours. There's no round number of significance to this record coming out. So why are we sitting here tonight watching you play songs from this album?
1: First of all, because of what happened, and even though I did go on tour and it was a cool experience, of course, certain things about the tour were a bit stunted because many people just were not ready, you know, for even my kind of show, which is, you know, not... Biscuit by any means, you know. I should hope not, <laughs> for many reasons. But, uh, but. <laughs> sorry, Biscuit, but I mean, you know what I mean. Like they're like, you know, yeah, yeah. And it's not really what you it's need It's a little that m- mellower, I would imagine. It's yeah. a little mellower, just okay. a touch. All right. It's not like everybody in the world was at those shows. It was good to do that tour and people were there and it was a great experience. But of course, there's a lot of people who missed that tour too. And uh, I was invited to play the Mercury Lounge on September 21st for their 25th anniversary. So that is significant in that it was September twentieth, two thousand and one, that I played New York City. If my New York show had been one day earlier, the Mercury Lounge wouldn't have even been able to open. They were only allowed to open on the twentieth. Stuff below Houston Street was because the city was yeah, shut down. Yeah, right. Was shut down. So it was an emotional night for everybody. It was probably the first night on that tour. The tour I started on the Saturday after nine eleven in Philly. But it took until about that night, September twentieth, that people were kind of ready to unglue themselves from the news and think about something else, and maybe venture out and and get a breath of fresh air. Basically, was what my show kind of provided. So that was a great memory for everybody, and they invited me back, and we all agreed that maybe going back to that night in a way, without the horrible circumstances, you know, making it more of a "we're still here," you know, kind of celebration uh, would be a good thing. And it was. People loved that album too. I mean, people, my fans. That album is their soundtrack for recovering from that.
0: Let's go back a little further to your time with the Posies, and, uh-huh. and, and let me explain why uh, I missed the boat on the Posies. Mm-hmm. Around the early and mid-90s, I was the music director, program director of my college radio station. Where was that? I, uh, Brooklyn College Radio, WBCR, mm-hmm. mighty 590 AM on your radio dial. Mm-hmm. And I didn't kind of get into power at that place, if you want to call it power, <laughs> until my junior year. Now, your album, uh, Frosting on the Beater? Uh-huh. That is
1: probably widely considered the most popular Posey's album. Is that a fair statement? It is the our biggest selling album in the U.S.
0: Okay, good. I see. I did do my homework. That came out in 93, the year before I came into power. And wow. you're talking about a dude who just immersed himself in the CD library mm. and cataloged everything from A to Z. And I want to believe in my heart of hearts, Ken, that, mm. that I did at one point hold a Posey's album in my hand and put it in a DOS-based database oh, yeah. to make sure that we had it. But it certainly came out before I had the ability to put it on a playlist mm-hmm. or maybe even listen to it. It was just by a year we we missed each other. But that's the beauty of the podcast, even at my age, that it's never too late to discover something that may be 20, 30, 40, 50 years old.
1: Totally. You know what's funny? Uh, my daughter is 15. You know, I, I hear the music coming out of her room. She turned me on to, just by playing it, I was like, what's this? This is cool. Um, Coconut Records, yeah. uh, which is Jason Schwartzman's Shortsman. mm-hmm. solo alter ego for whatever he does, whether it's a pop record or an instrumental yeah. soundtrack, he calls it Coconut Records. And it blew my mind that my 15-year-old daughter is playing this basically 10 or 11-year-old record. You know that I've never heard of, and blowing my mind, and I thought that was pretty cool.
0: That music's right up your alley. I would yeah. think it's kind of I in had the same. No idea it the, existed. The same universes as the Posies yeah. and, and your solo stuff. Cool little tidbit about the Posies that I found out is again this album comes out in '93. Now mm-hmm. this is right in the boom of the grunge explosion, mm-hmm. and yet the Posies is not grunge. It's more. Singer-songwriter, power pop, certainly in the vein of more of kind of college rock like Matthew Sweet and Teenage Fan Club, but yet you're signed to Geffen, Mm -hmm. you're probably touring the world. With Teenage Fan Club for that record, Oh, cool. What was it like to be in that scene but not really fit into that scene, I would say? Nirvana were your label mates,
1: right? Yeah. And I might add, you are from the Pacific Northwest. I yeah, mean. We, we are from Seattle. Right. Uh, essentially, I mean, we were even from a little town. Just like Kurt was from Aberdeen, we were from Bellingham. We started in 1988, and Sub Pop started in 1988. So we always celebrate the same anniversary. So nothing, Seattle was not Seattle as we know it when we moved there. And it just happened right as we arrived, which is very interesting. Our first album, Failure, which we, we released it as a homemade cassette in the spring of 88, <laughs> which went viral. It got on commercial radio in Seattle, for no reason from a cassette from a cassette wow okay um, and just you know things just started blowing up in her face like uh okay and then Pop Llama picked it up because we loved that label already and we wanted to be on it they picked up uh, our first album and pressed it as a vinyl it didn't come out on CD for like two more years because nobody cared about CDs in 1988 they were like a niche <laughs> audiophile product. I
0: think the first CD I ever bought was Bon Jovi Slippery When Wet. Wow. followed by the Cocktail soundtrack. Mm. I'm embarrassing myself now. I'll, I'll just talk <laughs> about. Very good. Yeah. Okay, so Pacific Northwest. Uh-huh. I am a huge fan of that area. I've I've done some recording out in Seattle. I've been Which there. Which studio? Electro Kitty?
1: Yeah, I've never worked there, but I know of it. You know. Okay. Yeah. So so you know I'm legit then. Mm-hmm. Um yep. you so make that
0: up. now you don't live there anymore?
1: I have a studio there, and I'm a frequent visitor, and I still have lots of friends and family in the area, but I live in France. And I have lived in France for 16 years.
0: Really? Hmm? How did that come about?
1: Dream All Day, the single from Frosting on the Beater, the Posies' third album, was a huge hit in France thanks to the marketing genius of a young woman named Dominique Sessi, who is now Dominique Stringfellow.
0: I assume that's your wife and not your sister. Yes.
1: <laughs> she's from France. she just gotten her marketing degree or her marketing master. And she went to work for like, I don't know, Revlon or something like that. And she's like, well, this sucks. And then she saw an ad. Geffen France was looking for basically an intern. And she said, okay, well, how hard can it be? So she went to the thing, said, oh, I'd like, I would like to be the intern for you No, Is that uh, your impersonation yes, of your wife? Yes. And, uh, <laughs> The boss of Geffen, France, uh, Sandy Scott, said, all right, kid, you want to work a record? Pick one of these new international releases and work it. See what you can do, kid. And she looked at a couple pre-release cassettes and said, ah, the Posies, that looks interesting. I'll, I'll give it a shot. And boom, we like had like a top 10 hit. Wow. And she's like, oh, this is easy. I, I like Z-record business. It's uh, quite simple, huh?
0: Is that what compelled you to marry her, is that she was able to promote your record?
1: Well, we just ended up spending a lot of time together. <laughs> I could imagine yeah. so, yeah, right. <laughs> so, but we didn't marry then. When I, I met her, love at first sight, before I even knew that she had that role, I mean, we were about to meet the record label, and I was like, oh my God, that's the woman I'm going to marry. Um, you said that? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing, okay. Um, I love stories like that. Yeah, crazy, right? But she wasn't on the market at the time. Usually uh, the case, right? Uh, that I knew she um, So 10 years later, we mm-hmm. were single at the same time, finally. I'd be with somebody and then she'd get single and then oh crap and then I'd get single and she'd time have a boyfriend yeah. 10 years later we we uh, we were both single at the same time and I wasted no time I think I invited her to come to Seattle and she did and we got married like two weeks later
0: wow alright so you're a regular Romeo there Ken just <laughs> to go through the timeline of your history you weren't born in Seattle you were born in California
1: yeah I was born in LA the internet tells me your dad was a Hollywood television executive that makes it sound like he was the guy that came up with like Sanford and son? or whatever but uh <laughs> Um, but no, my dad sold ad time. How do you wind
0: up moving to Bellingham? Was, I assume it was because your parents wanted to move? Did they get divorced? Or... They did
1: get divorced. We were living in the Chicago area. My dad was working for um, WBBM. That was kind of the end of the road for their marriage. And my mom wanted to leave the Chicago area. She wasn't that big of a fan. And she wanted to move where we had some family. My mom and dad are both from the Bay Area originally. Um, and she was like, man, eh, Bay Area is a little sketchy. It's expensive. It's, ah, I don't know. Her brother, my uncle, had moved to the little, even littler town of Ferndale, Washington. He was an engineer, and there's an aluminum plant there, and he got a gig, and they moved there in the 70s. And my mom thought, well, we could be out there. It's chill. It's not a big city. It'll be easy to navigate. It'll be safe, affordable. You know, my mom hadn't worked in 13 years or whatever, so she had to kind of start over. So there's all of that to consider. And it was a good soft landing, Bellingham. It was a much more interesting place than I had ever lived. You know, I mean, we lived in LA for like five minutes, but generally we lived in places kind of like this where we are now, like the suburbs, like hardcore suburbs. And that wasn't, you know, I was like a fish out of water. I was really, really ready for cultural stimulation. And we had the opposite. And we had the opposite. But in (laughs) Bellingham, you know, it was funky. There were hippies, there was a college, there was this, there was that, but there was some subculture. And that kind of opened the door for me to becoming... more interesting person. And where
0: the posies kind of made their bones, right? That's where you met your co-conspirator in the posies, Exactly.
1: So John Hour, with whom I formed the band when he was 13 and I was 14, he joined a little band that I had with my schoolmates. I just started in high school and he was finishing middle school and uh, the band that I had formed when I was in middle school was still going. He joined and the band didn't really do much, but what we met and then we became pals. And then when he got to high school the next year, we started just playing music together all the time, every single day. Cool
0: the cars are starting to line up outside oh yeah I, gotta, I, gotta, I got gotta, a lot of flossing to do buddy you gotta floss you gotta water pick you gotta brush your teeth I want you to go fight the cavity creeps they're terrible aren't they they're wearing a body <laughs> stocking
1: that's what's the weirdest thing about them <laughs> at the
0: back of uh, P Hux's living room I'm, I'm gonna be watching with a keen eye and I look forward to seeing the concert canon I appreciate the time
2: man thank you very much fantastic thank you despite what you have heard you cannot cage this bird sparrow on the wing longs to hear you sing. Once you have opened your heart to its church, you find that the sparrow
0: string fellow. Earlier in the podcast, we heard Find Yourself Alone, both off the 2001 album Touched. Find out more. See him in a living room near you. Get the goods at kenstringfellow.com. Big thanks to Ken for taking the time to talk in between oral hygiene and rock and roll. John Myers from the Vinyl District for hooking us up. P-Hux and family for the hospitality. And thank you loyal podcast listener for taking another strange trip with me down the indie music superhighway. Listen to all the independent minded podcast episodes if you dare, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and SoundCloud. Follow on social at Bald Freak Music and quietly stalk me at BaldFreak.com. Special thanks to my friends at The Vinyl District. Get their free record store finder app on your wireless handheld doohickey and get your daily indie record store fix, including album reviews, free stuff, and this podcast at TheVinylDistrict.com. Next time on Independent Minded, making independent music from a different perspective inside a 50,000-square-foot vinyl record pressing plant in Alexandria, Virginia, and a talk with Furnace Records CEO Eric
2: Astor.